0: Welcome to the Ankler Podcast. This is Elaine Lowe here in Los Angeles on Thursday, February 8th. I'm joined by Richard Rushfield, where that massive SoCal storm has finally passed us by. Richard, I've never had so many people send me videos of the L.A. River looking like an actual river. Have you recovered from our collective four days of gloom?
1: Ah, recovered. I want it back. That's my weather. It was great to finally have it.
0: <laughs> and in case, listeners, if you were wondering what happened to Sean McNulty of the Wake Up Newsletter, surprise, he's also here dialing in from earnings land in New York City, which is why, class, I'll be your substitute teacher for today. Now, Sean, is it true what the Wall Street analysts are saying? Are we indeed having a great quarter, guys?
2: Uh, at some places, sure, <laughs> yeah. At some places not so much. Three between the lines here.
0: All right. Well, we're going to we're going to dig into that in a little bit. But before we get into this week's topics, the Ankler's new partnership with LA's number 1 NPR station, 89.3 LAist, formerly known to some of you as KPCC, officially kicks off this week. Now, of course, LAist is Southern California Public Radio's flagship radio station and digital news site, and the Ankler team will be on air for entertainment segments throughout the day on Entertainment Thursdays during its following shows. We'll have a Morning Edition, Air Talk, and All Things Considered, where Ankler reporters including Peter Kiefer, Sean McNulty, Janice Min, Richard Rushfield, and myself will be on from time to time. We'll be covering breaking news as it happens, as well. As our own stories. And just as a reminder, you can read Richard, Sean, and myself here at the podcast anytime at podcasts at theankler.com. All right. So a big Q4 earnings week this week with Fox. Spotify and The New York Times all reporting their end of 2023 numbers. But the company getting the most attention this week is Disney. Okay, so for the numbers nerds out there, let's take a quick look at that. It uh, beat on per share earnings, came in slightly under revenue expectations and lost about 1.3 million Disney plus subscribers after increasing its price. So now it still has around 111 million subs, which is nothing to sneeze at. But that was not the biggest news coming out of the company, was it, Sean? Which is still, by the way, in a proxy fight with Nelson Peltz. The House of Mouse is taking a hefty $1.5 billion stake in Epic Games, the studio behind Fortnite, and is entering a sports streaming service joint venture, which means that its own ESPN will sit alongside Fox and Warner Brothers Discovery. So, Sean, friends become enemies. Enemies become friends. What's old is new again. How big of a deal is this? (laughs) <laughs>
2: you didn't even mention Taylor Swift. I mean,
0: uh, the, probably, Taylor the, you know
2: <laughs> I mean oh, oh I'm sorry. Did I spoil the lead here? Okay. I'm like the big news, I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> You're buried the lead here, Elaine. So, yeah, I put a, a Voltron GIF in the uh, in the wake up this week. The three <laughs> pa- three powers, not five, but uh, uniting here to uh, four come together to save the bundle. The Hollywood studio system, sports. I'm not quite sure which, which analogy you want to take here, Elaine, But yeah, they each own a third of this JV, which does not have a name yet. It's sports Hulu, supposedly going to launch. What was it? Sports Hulu?
0: What that it too, is, but
2: right? I know. We need we got we need to workshop this. I don't know. I couldn't couldn't think of it. I went with sports superstreamer, which is not a good name either. But the thing is to know if they have a if have a one third ownership stake in it. But their cut of, so say if the price is $40 a month, their cut is not the same because ESPN, uh, the per sub fee is much larger than TNT and FS1 and Fox. So Disney's probably gonna get a much larger cut of the subscription fee, um, but they have a one third ownership stake. But this is, you know, uh, we'll talk about your job speeds in a bit, but this is a new company, Elaine. This has no employees, has no name. This is a separate entity from all three companies. So, they gotta hire some folks. This has to in launch in theory, six months. Right? That's not bad. Yeah. In theory, they, they better. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be on that earnings call in six months if this thing doesn't, you know, take off. To your point, it is the deal is not the deals are not signed. This is uh, you know, they made clear this is uh, an intent or whatever the, the word is and they put in the in the PR release. But uh, you know, but if this doesn't happen Elaine, that would be a big uh, a big face plant in the history of <laughs> Hollywood for sure.
0: Yeah, and CNBC's reporting that it's likely to cost somewhere between forty-five and fifty dollars a month. Is that, is that reasonable if you're a sports fan? Yeah,
2: you know, I put a poll in the wake up to see what people are thinking about the the biggest. I mean, it was kind of a split, but you know, uh, thirty-five to forty-five seems to be where people are landing on this, which is about where I would think it is as well. I'm, I'll put a, a hint. I'm going to do a little math on this in the wake up uh, on Friday to kind of at least see what the actual costs here are for the networks because I just, you know, each network gets a small fee uh, per sub fee. So that's already set. And the fees that they're paid by cable companies for carriage, the quote unquote affiliate fees, those are going to be the same. So they're not going to cut each other in on a deal. So whatever Comcast pays ESPN for, you know, for the right to carry ESPN every month, that'll be the same fee that this new company will be paying ESPN, you know, per subscriber. So the math is kind of out there. The question is how much of a profit margin, Elaine, do you want to take on this? And how greedy, or whatever you want to call it, how much overhead do you have to suppl- uh, to uh, support here? Advertising still part of the mix. And this is, you know, this is a mini bundle, so it's 14 networks together. So it's essentially just a, a small cable bundle that you, that's streaming only, that's owned by the three studios. So it's not there's anything much else to it. So. And we shall see. There
0: was a lot of other news that came out of Disney. You mentioned Taylor Swift, oh, obviously. Yeah. The Eras tour obviously. coming to March Disney. March fifteenth, Elaine huge. has it on her
2: calendar. Come on. <laughs> that's it. Four new four new acoustic songs, Elaine. Come on. Yeah.
0: Come March fifteenth, I'll be tuning in after after my children are done watching Bluey. <laughs>
2: <laughs> if you can get the, yeah, if you can get the TV back mm-hmm. yeah. But exactly. I mean, like any
0: other highlights that we should know from the Disney call.
2: Well, you alluded to a little bit of the uh, investment in Epic Games, so certainly the home of Fortnite, best known as 1.5 billion. It's a minority stake; wasn't you know, described how much of what that percentage is. And they're going to build essentially, you know, a quote unquote Disney World, you know, inside or adjacent to Fortnite, with your favorite Pixar, Marvel, Star Wars characters. You can you know make your own games and. I, honestly, I, I have not been in Fortnite, so I'm gonna. I'm just kind of going. I'm <laughs> going with whatever Iger said on the call. But you also buy virtual merch, maybe some IRL, you know, real merch. The Bob said maybe even you can, you know, maybe some watch some things, you know, uh, watch stream stuff in there, you know. So he seemed very excited about it. This does Epic, of course, had a the big battle with Apple over mm. the cut that Apple takes in the App Store, uh, the, the lawsuit that eh, kind of went Apple's way in the end. But with Disney being an investor now they have a stake in epic's uh, total revenues here so they certainly are into that into that app store fight uh, in a bigger way so that was you know the other probably biggest headline that came out you know was certainly the epic games announcement so disney has tried before i'm sure you were a big fan of club penguin back in the day elaine club penguin what was club penguin a, not nothing no. that was their the gaming thing that, that they did that was their early attempt at a at a gaming oh, kid site yeah. i don't you know again not my demo and then otherwise you know linear tv elaine The curious thing about Disney is, you know, like 80% of their profitability comes from theme parks and and consumer products.
0: Theme parks did fine again this quarter.
2: Theme parks had their biggest quarter, you know, ever. So in terms of revenue, they're continuing to kill it. Consumer products, (laughs) consumer products, they had $1.4 billion of revenue and they had $700 million of profitability. That's like a 50% margin. Like wow. if you're wondering, you know, why why all the stuff you buy at Disney is so expensive and what it actually costs, like the t-shirt business is alive as well at, <laughs> at the Disney Corporation. But revenues in linear TV were down 7%, 14% domestically. Obviously the strikes, you know, this mm-hmm. is a Q4 we're talking about here. So no false schedules. ABC advertising was was challenged, certainly. And we saw at Fox, you know, the numbers, their advertising was down as well. So again, you know, we had the meta numbers and Google numbers last week and their advertising is up. And it's like, this is not, you know, Q4 looks like a bad quarter for advertising. And that's what Disney certainly confirmed. So but that's the linear TV business still contributes 20 percent of their profit over 20 percent of their profitability.
0: Yeah. For a business you know. that is in secular decline, as the phrase is. Secular means-
2: that number ain't grown. That number's not growing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, the little bumps from like a presidential election year will, you know, help you out a little bit. But on the whole, that's the solve for X that Iger still has to figure out mm. is what you know, how do we what do you do with it? Um, so,
0: well, we can always rely on you, Sean, to break down the numbers for us in your morning wake up newsletter. And moving on to Richard's column this week, it was a look at the theatrical business. Another, I mean, can we say in secular decline as well? No, 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 no,
2: no. Don't you know it's on the way back, Elaine? This year, yes. Sorry. I should. When are we talking about? Which year, Elaine? You know, Richard, we have a... Depends which time you talk to us, right, Richard? How
0: troubled is it, Richard? It's still, as you noted, a $70 billion business in 2023. But like, what is the main... That may
1: be a little a little high also, Readers jumped down my throat of that 70 billion number, but it is a business that has suffered a series of pretty unique devastations in recent years. But the start of the streaming war being one of them, the COVID shutting down both production and exhibition for a year and a half or so was a pretty unique thing a lot of bad decisions from management about how to direct it and putting a lot of their eggs in a a superhero shaped basket and then we had the strike most recently shutting it down so it is a business that overall suffers from a lot of a lot of misfortune and a lot of bad decisions however when there's a product that people want and are interested in it performs as well as anything ever did so you know, the overall business may look like decline, but individual products look as strong as ever. And it's a question of they're about to enter a year where there will be very few of those products in the market. So things will look very bad indeed. But the question is, how, how do you get people excited about this more? And how do you you put more of those products into the marketplace?
0: And you had a few choice words and advice, starting with don't blame all of it on the streamers, right? Yeah, it's
1: the streaming disruption and Netflix is too hard to compete with and everything. It's just become the dog ate my homework of it. Mm -hmm. And the streaming world certainly did disrupt the cozy old business. And if anyone has the formula to invent a time machine and take us all back to 2009 i think that's a fantastic business plan that would be all for that but barring that streaming is here the competition is here both for eyeballs and for stars and talent and if you're going to make a movie it's up to make something that is unique and exciting and people want to watch and it's up to you to make an event at it and if you don't do that it's not netflix's fault or any streaming Places fault, it's your fault, and you need to you need to take a look at that,
0: Sean, You're nodding.
2: Yeah, I mean, I just the, the tracking for Dune Two just came out today. Uh, you know, 65 million. I'm like, all right, and that's been advertised. They're making that an event, you know, and it's it's uh, and you know, Denis Villeneuve. You, so you know, quality, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's that's the job, you know. When you have Madame Web coming out, which is tracking is not like you know the next Marvel test here, Lane, and it's looking like kind of a fail at this point. We'll see what it does. So again, that's of no fault that anybody else, the creatives at that studio and the people, you know, who put that together. So there's no, streaming is not, is that because people are sitting home watching Netflix as to why people are, you know, not, spending money at the movies it's competition certainly but you have richard's right you have to create these events richard you've mentioned a few times you don't just go on friday and see what's at the theater it's like you have to earn people's attention more and and, you know which is the way it should be it's you know that's a very healthy environment and the bar to get people is higher there's definitely
1: more competition there's no no question about that but a business that is dying doesn't sell you know half a billion dollars of tickets to a period piece about nuclear scientists in the 1940s. Like that is not a sign of a business on its last legs. That's a sign of a business that has a lot of latent demand that you just have to figure out how to tap into.
2: Yeah. Finding the hits, Richard. Find the hits, yeah. right? Exactly.
0: And um, among your slightly more controversial advice, embrace AI, Richard.
1: Yeah, I mean, oh they, they, and this, yeah. this came out of the writer's strike, basically. The conversation all seemed to be like, how do we stop AI? How do we shut down AI? And I'm here to deliver the, the news to you. You're not. Go to any film school <laughs> and grab a student and ask them, say, do you think we should use AI? And look at the response you get. Like, what are you doing here, old person? <laughs> um, it's We should figure out how to make sure people are compensated for it and people control the rights To their films, that's important and, you know, something we have to do. But AI is here, it is coming, whether you're a production assistant or a line producer or a writer or a special effects artist... Either it will be part of your job or it will be part of the job of the person who replaces you who has figured out how to use that uh, really well. So you can decide which one of those you want to be.
0: All right. Well, as we welcome our new robot overlords, you can read Richard's full piece (laughs) plus Sean's Disney breakdown over at theankler.com. Up next, Peter Kiefer joins us to dive into his recent features, including one on L.A.'s toniest private schools and another on the documentary market. We'll be back in a moment. All right. Time to bring in Peter Kiefer. Welcome back, Peter. Are you staying dry out there now that our four days of SAD are over?
3: You know, I'm with Richard. I, you know, when you're born and raised in Southern California, you, you cannot get mad at a streak of rainy weather. But I was very irritated by the leaks in the middle of my living room. So uh, other than that, <laughs> I'm glad everyone stayed safe, if, if you did. And um, yeah, a little more rain w- wouldn't, wouldn't kill us.
0: Okay. So it was only raining inside a little bit. So you're fine with that. Okay. Yeah. yeah it it's a great
3: feature <laughs> we built into our house. <laughs> Unknown feature. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so you had two great pieces over the last couple of days. It's been a very Full week of features for you, Peter, one on the state of Hollywood's private school arms race, where you wrote that the post-pandemic academic landscape, a teenage mental health crisis and other factors have really shaken the environment, it sounds like.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a it was a departure piece for the ankler. But given that both Richard and I are products of the independent school scene in Los Angeles, I felt like uh, we were entitled every once in a while to sort of give this, you know, the, the state of the industry and What I was just interested in doing and what I was able to draw upon were just conversations and observations that I have from former friends at the private school I went to, my peer groups and family members, a number of whom are teachers, administrators and students at these schools. So I I, I would collect a lot of things. Janice would collect a lot of things. And it just kind of felt like there was an opportunity to try and get a, a sense of what the climate was like in the private school landscape. And it's tense is the sort of short answer. And I'll quickly, you know, it, it it goes back to it. There's a number of things that happen that I sort of break down in the piece. But you kind of have to start with the obvious one, which is how expensive it has become to send your 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 child to these schools. You know, and we're it's,
0: talking it's, like forty, fifty thousand dollars a year, it's,
3: right? It's not uncommon to be shelling out fifty thousand dollars just for the tuition. By the way, there's other sort of s- other ways that they can hit you up for an additional five to ten to fifteen thousand dollars. So you're just kind of Just just to get your foot in the door, you're staring down around you know between forty five to fifty thousand bucks. So that's this is like what fifth grade or something. Yeah, no, (laughs) it's yeah, it's it's. And
2: (laughs) sorry, I'm just I'm just sitting here in my uh, east East Coast enclave here. Not that it's that much cheaper here, Peter. But I'm like, okay, these
1: are
0: wild numbers. And just to just to
2: uh, upset our
1: our listeners. uh, when I'm 150 years old, and and when I <laughs> attended an LA private school, one of the ones mentioned in this piece, in, in this World Crossroads School, I uh, who can guess what my, the tuition was in those days?
2: <laughs> Two bits,
1: yeah, <laughs> pretty close. It was four thousand dollars when I when I went to Crossroads School, and they well, raised it while old, I was yeah. there to four thousand five hundred, and the parents uh, yeah, went went, yeah. went bonkers. So. Think about that. 10X here.
3: 10X here. Yeah, so you got to start with these astronomical sums that are being asked of parents. And then there was a series of events, you know, you got to starting with, I mean, the pandemic was sort of the centerpiece of the story. And my general thesis is that the school atmosphere has never really recovered Mm post-pandemic because of all the sort of trauma that was inflicted on all of us with the school closures, with the masking mandates, the vaccine mandates, and all the sort of acrimony and, and, and fighting that ensued. Uh, Over all of those things. But another flare up that sort of triggered why we should wanted to do this story was the Israel Hamas war, which I've reported on several times for the Ankler. But that has really stirred deep, deep anger and and, and passions at a number of these schools, not terribly dissimilar to what you've seen on some of the um, University campuses, it's just a little different. Um, So anyways, I just thought that collectively, if you could sort of explain how we got to this place where tensions are really running high, people are, are very much breathing down each other's necks about what's happening on these schools. And it's just really a tense moment. And the mental health thing, amongst the mental health crisis among students, I think, is an extremely important thing that we all need to be both aware of and sensitive to.
0: It's fascinating, especially if somebody was a product of the Chicago public school system. It's a, a world that I have no insight into, at least until now. So definitely, listeners, check that out over at TheAnkler.com. Peter, you also had a deep dive into the documentary space after your trip to Sundance a couple of weeks ago, where you wrote that the mood among docu going into the festival – was, and I quote, pessimistic bordering on funereal, particularly coming off of the last year's bear market for nonfiction films. Right. But it looks like things kind of picked up this year.
3: Yeah. Yeah. This was another story I wanted to tackle because I was in Sundance and there's just such a high concentration of filmmakers there and sellers and agents and whatnot. I, and this is a funny story because I came in to this, to the festival with sort of one narrative in my head that the previous 12 to 15 months in the documentary marketplace was pretty abysmal. And and you didn't have to look very hard to find somebody who works in that space to tell you that. But over the course, actually, Richard gave me great advice. He said, look, just let the festival play itself out because you don't know what's going to happen by the end of it. And it was actually quite wise let because, it let it
1: happen to you.
3: I, yes. <laughs> let it happen to you. So so I was glad I didn't I didn't rush this piece out because a lot of there's a lot of action coming out of Sundance in the uh, documentary space. And a lot of really big big uh, sales. The Christopher Reeve documentary was picked up by Warner Brothers for about 15 million dollars, which is a very very large sum in this space. Netflix purchased four documentaries. Uh, four other documentaries are still potentially going to sell. So all in all, this year's Sundance was very, very successful marketplace compared to last year's, which was just pretty much abysmal. One small sale occurred the entire time. And that set the mood for the industry, which was things are bleak. And is this the sort of death spiral of this niche industry that's long existed in Hollywood? Uh, where the sums of money you're talking about are nothing compared to what you're talking about in the scripted space. But still, it's an important part of the community of filmmakers here in L.A. and also in New York. And so just given my experiences in Sundance and seeing what happened, I was able to get a sort of sense of what happened, which was that the industry had an, an incredible boom starting around 2012. And a lot of that had to do with the arrival of the streaming Era because
0: it's cheaper to put on a, a documentary, right? No, exactly. no big A-list salaries attached.
3: Exactly. Exactly. And that was a really like rich period for this genre. And, you know, everyone has their favorites. You know, the Tiger people think of the Tiger King, Wild Wild West. There was the true crime boom. There was mm. there was the cults boom. And then there was really some more sophisticated fare that was really coming out. And if you were in this space, it was a real golden era and people were making real money. Laureen Powell Jobs got into the business. You know, the, the guys over at Imagine launched their own documentary branch. Everyone, Will Smith launched a documentary or hired a documentary uh, development executive. Everyone wanted to get into the space. Uh, and then something happened. It came to a screeching halt. And that basically happened when we saw the Netflix stock correction. And in that's 2022, when, in exactly. April of
0: 22. And, you know, now we've also seen what like Showtime's docs, like we we've seen what's happened in the nonfiction area at HBO Max.
3: Exactly. Exactly. So the Netflix correction was what people kind of use as the moment in time when the sort of lights went on at the party and the party was sort of over. And that really impacted the documentary space. And so then you saw consolidation, budget started getting slashed, and a number of the buyers that the industry could rely on either like went out of business, like in the case of CNN's documentary film department, which was just cut, or other ones like uh, Showtime and HBO Max, they they got kind of rolled into these new streaming platforms. And the number of buyers was was cut dramatically in a very, very short period of time. So that w- that had a huge impact. There was also a shift to more conservative style documentaries that occurred. And that's when we started to see this this sort of a burst of celebrity driven uh, biopics, which I think anyone who has browsed any of the streamers over the past few years, you can't avoid them. Uh, you know, Schwarzenegger, uh, a sly, The Pamela Anderson, I love story.
0: I was a big fan of the Beckham one on Netflix.
3: Beckham one was an example of this. There's, there's, it's sort of endless. There's tons of them and there's probably even more in the pipeline. But that was a sign of an industry that was resorting back to very, very conservative fare. And it upset people within the industry because the filmmaking community uh, of of documentary filmmaking community is really kind of driven by people who are on a mission to tell sophisticated, hard-hitting stories. They are, very much in the family of journalists, largely. There's an artistry that comes with making a documentary, but they wanted their truth tellers. And I think largely they are journalists too. So when they saw the trend away from the stories that they wanted to tell to the ones that Arnold Schwarzenegger wanted to tell, there was some concern about w- what was happening and is there a place for sophisticated uh, uh, documentaries in this new streaming landscape. And for about, you know, 15 months, that was an open question. And I think why this year's Sundance was so important and heartening to people was that you saw a kind of a return because a number of the titles that sold, they fall into the category of like, you know, kind of difficult, sophisticated stories. So it was a real welcome sign of life for an industry that's been suffering through real sort of existential questions about what the future holds for it in this new streaming landscape where everyone is sort of battling with a deep insecurity.
0: Mm, because the thing you note about these celebrity docuseries is a lot of times they're produced by the celebrity, right? Like it's not yeah, exactly. really yeah. it's not really like yeah. a deep objective pro. Independence. Yeah, yeah.
3: Yeah, yeah. No, totally. And I think, you know, I say this in the story, this whole thing kind of started... Uh, with the Last Dance, which was the five part, or was it oh, the ten part documentary series? Yeah, ten
2: part, ten part, uh, Michael exactly. Jordan. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. John,
3: did
0: you watch all of it?
2: Yeah, no, it was great. He was not a producer on that. I will note, Peter. He had the right to refuse certain content. You know, he had. A, they they showed it to him. I think you removed two or three things, maybe. But you're right. It was a moment of like a little bit of a gray there was area. Peter, a gray, yeah. yeah,
3: even if you didn't t- technically have a producerial credit, I think that, that people point to that as a moment when the subject was given a certain level of, of final cut authority, which uh, opened the gates for future uh, subjects to demand a similar amount of power. Now, I'm not saying all of them. I Certainly, most of them don't have final cut, I'd say. But they definitely – you start getting into a gray area of what – all right, so where – where was yeah? With your lawn? names on it, it's you know, yeah. I mean, right and as a producer, exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, and, and that you know, that's fine. I think th- th- there was a time when people were okay with a certain amount of these types of projects, as long as the market allowed for the other more hard hitting stories that we've seen come out in the past six seven years. It just started to feel like. For whatever reason, whether it was the finances surrounding it, basically like a a more conservative idea coming from these new dominant streamers, that the room for the sophisticated, hard-hitting stuff was getting it was shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And, you know, we included a Nielsen list of what are the most popular, and Sean actually, you and I had talked about this, you know, which of these documentaries are actually working. And that sort of Mm -hmm. gets it to another part of this whole discussion, which is that. All of this was happening against the backdrop of the sort of pivot to streaming when there was very little data that could tell us what was actually working. And that's not obviously that's not exclusive to documentaries, but when you're seeing the numbers, the sales acquisitions prices soar out of Sundance, you know, 12 million, 15 million, 18 million, it became sort of very commonplace to have in that world. That's that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, yeah. You don't know what your return on investment is in a world where no one's putting out their viewer data. So then that makes people start scratching their heads, questioning, well, why are we taking these bets? And is it actually worth it? Some of these products are quite risky and there could be some PR blowback. And then you get into the, well, it's worth it for the awards race. And mm. so then there's a deep onus on and pressure for the big doc acquisitions to perform on the award circuit. And that gets into a whole new can of worms about the way that the Academy right. has tried to sort of adjust the way it has evaluated certain films And I get into that in the piece as well, because there's an ongoing controversy about the shortlist of the documentaries that were nominated for this year's Oscars. There were
0: some uh, surprise snubs this year, weren't there? Yeah,
3: which in this world of documentary and nonfiction filmmakers and producers, it caused quite a stir. And it still has. It's a debate about whether or not there's an inherent bias towards certain documentaries that are bought and marketed by the most powerful streamers. Mm. And... There was three films in particular that at one point were the lead contenders in the race and they did not actually get on the short list,
0: Including the Michael J. Fox documentary, right?
3: Exactly. And I think a, th- a few months ago, that one did very, very well uh, in the award show, previous award show. And I, th- I think most people kind of felt it was a shoo-in. So there's just been a lot mm-hmm. of hand-wringing and sort of phone calls going on about, well, so what's your theory on why these films got snubbed? There's any number of reasons why these films, because the five films that, that are on there are all, are quite good. It's just, you know, there's so many things at play and there's so much insecurity. And I think that that is really kind of the thing that's driving this moment of this sense of crisis is that everyone is deeply insecure because there was a time when you could make a living doing documentaries and it felt like you could have, you, you had decent sized budgets. And there was, there's an opportunity there for a while where you were like, wow, this is great. And I think that is not dead But we're definitely in a new phase right now, and the question will be, can we go back to that old phase, or is this sort of the new reality, and everyone's just going to have to deal with it?
0: I mean, that kind of feels like the recurring theme of so much of the industry. I mean, right, Sean? Yeah. I mean, here, like uh, Elaine, Sean yeah, Richard, yeah. every week I feel like we're talking about some other part of the industry that just isn't the way it yeah. used to be, and
2: well, we're all yeah, just going to have to get used. It's not normal. going back. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. It's it's not going back to whatever it was. Nothing. Nothing ever has. I think Richard, you even mentioned that. You know, when in the history has anything gone back to the to what it was like ten years ago? I don't. You know, this has never happened in our business. I don't know why anybody expects. You know, it would change now, Elaine. But yeah, it is uh, uh, interesting, inter- interesting to hear how, how it flows through the documentary part. We,
1: we think we're special here, but what mm-hmm. business in the world is, do- <laughs> right. is doing doing well, yeah, things like exactly. they did it in the 1990s right now?
3: Yeah, but I think the, the only thing that sort of is worth noting is that this world of documentaries, it was never really huge sums of money. And so the shift... They're feeling it in a way that I think it's going from small to smaller. It's going from small to smaller. And I think the <laughs> scripted world you're still talking about, in in many instances, pretty large gargantuan sums of money uh, swirl, that are swirling around. And I felt, you know, so I think this one is uh, the, it's particularly acute. It's being felt acutely uh, more mm-hmm. so than you will in some of the other areas of the entertainment business.
0: Yeah. Well, everyone, you can read both of Peter's pieces over there at theankler.com. And you should also check out the latest from Claire Atkinson, who has a juicy look into the world of TV news stars like Rachel Maddow and George Stephanopoulos and why the world of eight figure paydays is likely coming to an end. Uh, Naturally, TikTok and AI have something to do with it. Up next, we'll be talking about jobs in Hollywood and where to find them, the subject of this week's series business newsletter. We'll be back in a moment. Okay, let's talk jobs. This week, Manoy and I took a good hard look at the jobs landscape, which, as anyone in this town knows, has been looking pretty bleak on the heels of one pandemic, two strikes and God knows how many mergers over the last few years. So I don't know what the vibe is in New York, Sean, but out here, it's not great. <laughs>
2: yeah, probably not. We're a little more diverse here in New York, but uh, I will note on the Disney call that they're going to hit their 7.5 billion worth of efficiencies by October uh, as print, and may, maybe a little bit more, but they did put a caveat that they will still be looking for more, very broad, but you know, we want to, as you know, reading between the lines on this stuff is always uh, the so question layoffs. mark here. So they're layoffs not, they're not done saying, looking. Well, they're not done. to anybody thinks it's over, uh, there was no guarantee of like, yeah, that's over with. We're good. It's like, no, we're still looking for quote unquote efficiencies. So interpret that as you like, uh, Elaine. So do we have to go to Saudi Arabia, Elaine? Oh, or what uh, do we What we have to yeah, go for the jobs I'm... here? Uh, you had a lot of options here in this piece. So <laughs> walk me through what, where, where, are, where are the jobs, okay, Elaine? Okay, so
0: like a notable stat for our listeners first, the Otis College study on LA's entertainment workforce says that Hollywood employment plunged 26% from a post-pandemic high in August of 2022, and they also say you know it wasn't really the the strikes it wasn't really the picket lines the the quote unquote more enduring threat actually has come from the years long arms race among streaming services yeah. that put subs growth over profitability. And, you know, like I think we've sort of seen the trickle down impact of that on the jobs at studios and at production companies, because Minori and I talked to executive recruiters and studio executives and writers to get a sense of what the landscape looks like. And also whether like traditional, no, not even traditional, but like recent safe havens like video gaming is still an appealing right. Place for entertainment staffers looking to make a leap outside of legacy Hollywood, and given that we saw what nineteen hundred layoffs over at you know Microsoft and Activision Blizzard, and you know over five hundred layoffs at Riot Games, including a very proportional cut in their entertainment division, as we've learned like not looking as robust but still better off than legacy entertainment which i don't know if that's heartening to anybody to hear but it's not right, it's it's right. there's still some growth there and you yeah. know like we also heard that there are some pockets of growth if you look at like legal or marketing, or distribution, but if you are a creative, if you are a creative executive, or a writer, or producer, it's still pretty tough out there, and one of the executive recruiters we talked to, this guy at Corn Ferry, Bill Simon, he says that the studios are likely going to be pretty cautious still over the next 12 to 18 months, so... You know, that's the scene out here.
2: Yeah, there was a phrase, uh, survive till 25 was something that came up in your yeah, piece. Yes, so that's
0: what one of the writer's assistants was telling me. He, he, he was like, yeah, survive till 25 is what my friends and I are saying out here. And that's the, that's the phrase that's going around. And it kind of feels that way on the studio side as well. I was talking to one SVP level executive who has not been working since early 23, who is now looking into applying to be a substitute teacher because- mm. You know, there are, there's just nothing available right now. And so the idea is just hang in there until the job market picks up again.
2: Yeah. But if you look, look at the timing on this stuff, Elaine. A lot of those layoffs, you know, we're coming up on about a year anniversary, maybe even more so for some of them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, severance for maybe some may have been, you know, a year or whatever it might be. So we may be coming up in that time where the comfort level for a bunch of people who were, you know, unfortunately caught up in that, and if you haven't landed somewhere else, could get a little dire out there. But you're still going to be covering this. Only people, if you have stories or insight, should be contacting you, I'm sure. This will be a, a theme you'll be continuing up on in, in series business going on here, yes, going please. forward. please.
0: Uh, anybody who wants to share their story, I'm at Elaine at ankler.com. You know, we've heard from so many readers and would love to hear from more. So, looking ahead to this weekend, There's something called Mm. the Superb Owl happening. Is that right, Sean? Taylor Swift may or may not be there. Yeah, sounds right.
2: <laughs> uh, Taylor Swift, uh, well, uh, unless there's uh, turbulence from uh, flying from Japan to Las Vegas, the big the big flight tracker. She, uh, I feel was, like
0: I've read like a half a dozen stories about like, can Taylor Swift make it to the Super Bowl oh, in God, time Tokyo? Were, yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> I know. I was like, oh, the, the West Wing episode explained it. I'm like, <laughs> or you just look it up online. Like, it's you know, time math. But yeah, she has a concert the day before. And uh, over I think it's in Japan. So she will be flying. The game starts at kickoff is 630, Elaine, Eastern time here thank on you on sunday Information
0: so i needed to know I, for sure <laughs> i'm sure you
2: knew exactly when it was starting but just uh just for the for the cheap seats out there out in las vegas yes So big uh chiefs and niners game on sunday and we're watching to see it's on cbs so uh how many i think this i mean the, the you know the advertising pieces have been coming out this week and a lot of ads have been, been dropping as well so it, it'd be a lot of celebrities guys you're gonna i mean it's like like, it's like an expensive one than, like, too,
0: isn't it, out there in Vegas to be there if you're if you're a fan. Yeah,
2: the tickets are I mean, it's mostly all-time high, you know, it's, just, it's kind of a secondary market for that. What are your plans, John? Elaine. well, as I do every uh weekend with my big football games, I'll be watching for the ads and the wake-up newsletter on Sunday night after the game. I'll be recapping who spent what that's seven million uh, seven million dollars for 30 seconds out there, no Elaine. More. So who's putting the big bucks up? Is there a version
1: like a P Vod? Version of uh, the Super Bowl we can get that is just like just Taylor Swift sitting there and the halftime show and the commercials. The Taylor Kid doesn't <laughs> do, and, doesn't uh, have Huffer. people throwing <laughs>
2: balls at each other and running around <laughs> richard you know what in about three years i'm sure a streaming service will have exactly that. everything but the game <laughs> that, will be sounds, uh, on peacock I, I would totally get uh, yeah, the, to that the rushfields feed uh coming out there yeah richard yeah.
0: peter what are your super bowl watching plans
2: yeah peter oh, yeah. what do you got you're watching this peter come on you're with me right Oh yeah
3: i'm watching it we're threatening to actually have uh, a few friends right. over to our house and <laughs> i think i know but i think we're going to try something different we're going to turn the mute off and then just put Taylor Swift albums on the entire time, and try and watch. Oh boy! I like And this watch because my daughter and my my wife oh, are man. big Taylor. We're just we're a Swifty household, so I, we're Which, gonna try
0: album are you going to start with is this like a yeah. red or are we starting with well, it reminds me
3: of, i just came up with this brilliant idea it reminds me of that old uh when you when you'd watch Uh-oh. the pink floyd stuff do you remember when you'd like put a movie on and wizard of oh, oz it the wizard, wizard of oz, oz. exactly oh, like
0: and it syncs up exactly so yeah. i'm
3: hopeful that uh, if i put on the right if i select the right taylor album it'll sync up perfectly with the <laughs> actions on the field so anyways no I'll, I'll be at home with my family with a few friends over and i'm looking forward to the game
0: okay, i look forward to your review of a cardigan narrated. Folklore era narrated Super Bowl. What about you, Richard? Super Bowl day used
1: to be the perfect day to go to Disneyland because so empty. I've done but, that. but yes. too many people I've, got yeah, wise that to makes that, sense. And, and now it's been ruined. Uh, so it's it's not uh, right. not empty I,
0: anymore. I went to Disneyland on a rainy Super Bowl Sunday once, and That's it was perfect. the best. You could yeah. just walk on to any <laughs> ride. It was like it was it was insane. You the
2: the Griswolds in
1: vacation yeah. just like popping on the ride. It was, no, it is it it so nice. good. People got too wise to it, and now it's actually pretty crowded on Super Bowl days, I hear.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, that is a wrap for this week, folks. Sean will have his box office breakdown and the breakdown of who spent the big bucks to advertise in the Super Bowl this year on Sunday night in the Wake Up newsletter. And on Monday, Minori and I will have another series business newsletter where this time we're going to talk labor and whether another strike is on the horizon on this side of the pond and the other. So you'll get all of these Mm. stories and more as part of your Ankler subscription, including access to the full suite of Ankler newsletters and podcasts. And you can subscribe at theankler.com. Also, email us anytime at podcasts at theankler.com and follow us on social media. We are on X and Instagram and all of that. Of course, thank you for listening. We will see you next time.